0: Well, um, we have called this Sunday Vision Sunday, and it's sort of a part of a wider teaching series that we've done. Now, I want to give a big disclaimer, because what I realized in the first service is that the the vision teaching that I sort of designed in my mind would probably take like an hour and a half. Um, And so what I want to do today is I want to offer you a posture, a, a posture of what we're stepping into. And then we will sort of supplement that with some of the specifics that we're stepping into. So my my hope, first of all, is, is, is a vision that you see yourself inside of because I, I hope that it's God's vision for us collectively. But my second hope is that there are enough footholds where you're like, okay, not only is that sort of conceptually big enough, like I I see it, but also there's some things I can grab onto and step into. And so there'll be glimpses of that in this teaching, um, because a sermon proclaims Jesus. A sermon tells you that you're loved by God. And if you don't hear anything else other than that today, if that's all you can sort of check in for, you know, the ADHD kicks in, the phones, that's okay. Like you are loved by God. He has forgiven you. Like. Sermon over. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I haven't got there yet. Uh, that comes with wisdom. But the second part of this is, is like, what is our collective life doing to, to, to both bear witness to that in our lives and also for us to be able to, to find the dreams and the purpose that God has for us individually? And so all of that sort of correlates into this wider web. And so what I want to do today is, is give us a posture give us a sense, a, a sense of shared collective vision, but also uh, to maybe leave the door wide open. Uh, because as we step into postures, what we find is that God doesn't just speak through one person or one group of people, that God begins to birth dreams and people that are like, well, what if we did this? And the beauty of the point of, of the life we're at in our church is that that sense of possibility of experimentation is so, so ready and available uh, that we can turn and say, okay, here's where the life is. And so I want to keep both of those doors open. Now, I want to direct your attention to uh, our vision statement that I've been trying on in different spaces for quite a while. If you have one of the old t-shirts, it says, love Jesus, love people, live fully, which is strong. Very good, John 10. Um, but when I'm trying to capture, there's, there's sort of this intersection point. There's, there's the grace of God that God has given himself to us and that we get to make our home in that love, in his uh, relatedness to us. And then there's the secondary element, deep love for the world that Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That when we, when we find ourselves in God's love, when we know ourselves as loved by God, there's something that expands beyond the bounds of that knowing of God's love that expands and it shares and it breaks forth in movement. And so trying to capture this sort of two-way street and really if I had to, to put those under the umbrella of one single metaphor, it would be the metaphor of home. Home, and you know, for many of us takes on a lot of complicated resonances, right? Perhaps you grew up in a home that was not safe a home that may have been a roof, but with little else. So for that, for you, I'm, I'm sorry. God's God still in the way that, you know, when we define God as father, doesn't mean that every depiction of father is a depiction of God, but God still has this, this ideal, this way of holding on to the goodness of what a father can and should be. And in the same way with home, it's true. God is inviting us to make his home with us. And so for me, Home is pretty complex, and it might be for you. Now, maybe you've been asked the question, where are you from? And perhaps that's been kind of charged with, you know, sort of that, that weird sidling racism, like, where are you from? Like, you're not from here. I'm sorry about that, too. But for me, that question is so powerful, and it's a question I, I want to capture the heart of without sort of suggesting those other connotations. So the, the question I've settled on, and the question many of you have heard me ask you, because I'm genuinely interested is where is home for you? Because then that that puts the ball back in your court. Where is home for you? Right? You can answer that. That's not, that doesn't suggest anything, but but for me, I'm genuinely interested. Where is the place that has shaped you? Where are the places that have made you? Where's the place maybe you identify with as home? Now, for me, I moved so many times growing up. I moved some 20 times before I was in middle school. And the question of where I'm from always is like, where am I from? It's a very good question. I'll never forget. One of the first times I really had that sense. My, my family was great. It was a very safe environment. I always felt very taken care of. But I remember one of the first times that I had just this experience of what I would call home, the feeling of home. Was when Courtney and I, who we we had been together for five years, we started dating in high school. Uh, still, it's not a normal thing in Oklahoma either. Okay, but this was our story, and we had been engaged for one of those years, and we got married. We moved to our first apartment in Yardley, Pennsylvania, just across the river. It was this little apartment, and just so like so viscerally, I was like, "This is our space. This is our life." And it was that first feeling of like, wow, I'm home, and that no matter what is to come, that sense of home is there, is is available to me. And then I'll, I'll never forget. A couple years later, we were able to to buy a house over in New Jersey. We moved to the Promised Land, and walking around this little Cape Cod, you know, having this sense that this all of this was such a gift, a space to call our own, full of our our pictures, our furnishings my stuff everywhere, my guitars, my books, (laughs) Courtney's beautiful attention to detail in every corner. Home is a feeling. In some ways, it's easy. It's easing as well. To be oneself, to relax. You know that feeling when you're at home where you don't have to apologize for opening the fridge and taking out what you want. You kick off your shoes and yeah, you'll get to them, but for just a moment, you can just put your feet up now, if you do walk into somebody's house that you were just visiting for the first time and do that, um, that might endear you to them, it might not. But home is not just ease, right? Home is also refinement. This has been one of the gifts of my life in, in finding this home with Courtney is that the sense of, of refinement that God is calling me to. If, if we just subjected ourselves to my sense of ease, then our house would be a disaster. But home calls me to discipline, to growth, to listen, to compromise. Home is uniquely spiritual. It is the intersection of the physical, the geographic, the relational, the familial, the cultural. Miroslav Volf says, Home comes closer to being a concentrate, concentrated site of all dimensions of life than any other social formation we can think of. Home is this sense that we can say spiritual in nature. And Jesus describes following him as being at home with him, abiding with him, as you'll say in John 15. And Jesus's call to discipleship is both a call to invitation. It is that call to be at ease. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. Come and find rest, Jesus says to us all. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come and find rest. It is a call To comfort, a call to ease, but it is also a call to challenge. In that same phrase, as I just said, take my yoke upon you. Jesus, his yoke is easy and it is light, but it's still a yoke. And that, that image of a yoke is of an oxen being saddled for its work to do. Jesus says, the work that I have for you is good work. It is easy in some ways, but it's still work for you to do. And today what I want to do, if you have a Bible with you, you can open to John 14 because we'll be kind of piecing our way through that passage. Um, If you've been around here a little while, you know that I I probably value John as a gospel more than the others, uh, which I will certainly learn in time. But in this larger portion of John, I want to divide it into two parts that correspond with our vision. Deep life with God, deep love for the world. There's God's part. There's the things that God has promised to do, the things that are unmerited on our part. We don't do anything to earn them. We don't do anything to deserve them. God just does it. As we sang that he is faithful and all of his promises are yes and amen. The promises that he has made are yes and amen. Now, as we talked about last week, If you're you're struggling with doubt, you have your sort of perplexity and questions, there are sometimes we ascribe promises to God that he's never made. That's that's one reason for disappointment. It's one reason we have misplaced expectations. But the promises that God has made in Christ Jesus, that we are inheritors of grace, that we are inheritors of his spirit, those are fulfilled. He is faithful and just to bring them to completion. And so I wanna look at the parts that are God's and we'll focus heavily on those today. And then as a way of sort of stepping into this threshold moment, what is our call as a people? Where are we called to be in this space right now? Where are we going? I wanna also look at our response, this element of deep love for the world. What does God have for us to do in that space? So first, God's part in light of his steadfast love through Jesus on the cross. Homemaking. Now, if you've been around here for a bit, we did a teaching series on this in 2021, all the years. (laughs) Time is a flat circle after the uh, pandemic. If you've been around here for a bit, we did a teaching series in 2021 called From Garden to City. And really, that was my best attempt to sort of succinctly summarize the whole story that the Bible is telling. And throughout that series, what I tried to do was even take that 12-part series and extrapolate it into one sentence. And if I had to define the Bible in one sentence, I I could maybe do worse than saying, God stopping at nothing to be God with us. From the very beginning of the story, God is God with us. God speaks the world to life, a symphony, words creating worlds. And then what we see is that God that so magisterially pronounces creation, let there be light and there is light, let there be the moon and there is the moon, let there be animals, let there be trees, let there be daughters and sons made in my image. The same God who calls forth creation is not staying at arm's length, not staying at a distance, but he draws near. Genesis 3 tells us that God walks through the garden in the cool of the evening. Biblical scholars look at Genesis 1 and what they see are echoes pronounced in other cultures where gods are designing temples for themselves. And it would seem that the God of the Bible in Genesis 1 is in fact designing a temple for himself, but the temple that he has designed is the whole of creation. And he is designing a place where he can draw near to his people. If you fast forward all the way to the end of the story, Revelation 21 and 22, what you find is that same vision has been held throughout the whole of the scriptures. In the end, God comes to the city of God. And what is a city but a collection of gardens, a bunch of gardens that run up against one another, a bunch of gardens that have now expanded multitudes, life. And in that city, there is no need for a temple because God himself is so present in every square inch that the Lord's presence itself is the temple, that it is lit like the radiance of the sun. And Revelation proclaims, behold, the home of God is now among people. In these threads throughout the story, we see one consistent theme that God is drawing near. One of the most central images of the Old Testament is found in Ezekiel 10, where the Spirit of God leaves the temple in judgment of the people of God. God has literally left the building. But now, in John's gospel, what we see is that that word that spoke the world to life has taken on flesh in John 1. The word became flesh and made his dwelling, made his place, made his home among us. God is consistently and insistently stopping at nothing to be God with us. And then it would seem there's a, there's a crisis that enters into this situation because Jesus keeps talk to, talking about he's gonna go somewhere else. And the disciples, hearing him say what he's saying, keep asking him, why, where are you going? Where where are you going that we cannot follow? But it's in that one and same breath, Jesus is pronouncing that he is in fact going away in a manner of speaking, going to the far country, in a manner of going to the cross, going down to the depths of death so that he can exhaust its power and overcome it. He is in fact going to that place by himself. But in that very same breath, but he says, I will come to you. I will come to you. I will not leave you orphaned. I, though I'm going away and coming back to you. Jesus in John 14 is building a temple, but it's not a temple made with human hands. Jesus is building a temple, but it's not a temple made of wood and timber, not a temple made of stone. Jesus is building a temple, but it's a temple that his spirit will inhabit the temple of our human hearts. John 14 says in verse two, "'In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. "'If it were not so, would I not have told you "'that I go and prepare a place for you? "'And if I go and prepare a place for you, "'I will come again and will take you to myself "'so that where I am, there you may be also.'" The language of the father's house is the language that Jesus uses elsewhere in Luke's gospel for the temple. Notice Jesus says here, there are many dwelling places. So so God is designing his temple. Jesus says that in my father's house, there are many temples. Paul will say it this way in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now in Corinthians, this this, uh, noun for you is used in two ways. It's used both individually and collectively. But throughout that text, what Paul is saying to us is that the spirit of God is wanting to take up residence in our hearts. And that where God takes up residence in our hearts, he transforms us, he changes us. He's given us his spirit as a a promise of the inheritance that is sure and certain. The primary thing that God wants to do in and among us, Ecclesia is to dwell, is to be present. This church then is is not judged then by the quality of its music, which is very strong, so good. This church is not judged by the friendliness of the people that sit in the seats when they walk in, which is also so good. And I encourage you friends, as we continue to have weeks like this where there's, there's new faces or there's a lot of us coming at once, like maintain that sense that you are looking around and seeing people. Often you see people in ways that, that, you know, I can't, and certainly not everybody on our team can. And so you're sitting beside them. You can notice their posture. Would you pay attention? When we gather on a Sunday morning, it's liturgy means work of the people. It's what we're doing here together. This church is not about the quality of the coffee, which is about as good as it gets when it comes. Now, I did realize we were out of coffee, so maybe I should have scratched that. This church is not about the caliber of the teaching, which has its moments. Church is about God's presence, cultivated both in us individually and in us collectively. John 14 is telling us that God is wanting to build a temple. In our lives, God is wanting to, to build an artifice of grace, of eternity in the very confines of our hearts. And he also, he's doing that among us. If you read other parts in the New Testament, Paul describes the temple of God as that place where walls have been broken down between disparate peoples. In Paul's day, it was Jew and Gentile. In our day, it can be socioeconomic classes that keep us at arm's length. It can be racial differences that keep us at arm's length. And what Paul is saying is that it was always a part of the gospel that these things that are separated by man are being brought together by God. And let what, what God has brought together, let no man separate. John 14, verse 16. So Jesus is making his home with us. He's drawing near to us. He's with us. That is amazing. And then in verse 16, it says, I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. God's presence, what we call the Holy Spirit, is an advocate. The Greek word paraclete. God's presence among us speaks truth. It leads us, it helps us to discern between the legion voices of lies that seek to kill, to steal, and destroy, and the voice of the good shepherd that lays down his life for us. Later in John 14, verse 26, Jesus tells us of the advocate, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Jesus isn't just with us in sort of a companion kind of way. Jesus is with us in this active, refining way. The Holy Spirit is that burning within us that ignites our hearts each week as we narrate the true story of the world. He bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, that we were made in his image. And through the Holy Spirit, our hearts cry, Abba, Father. And just imagine how many lies we all entertain on almost a momentary basis. We screw up something at work and we convince ourselves that we have no worth as a person. We compare ourselves to a friend's highlight reel on the internet. We think that an immediate gratification of a sinful desire will somehow fulfill that deep existential longing in our heart. We judge others. We condemn ourselves. We stay far away from God's love because we think we have to fix ourselves before we come back home. These are all lies. They all tell us something that is not true about us, about our world, about others. But what Jesus is saying is that there is a voice that speaks truth, a river of living water that flows from the very heart of God. And Jesus will say in John's gospel, that river that flows from the heart of God now flows within each one of us because we are alive in God's kingdom. Jesus is trying, advocating for us. What if you had somebody in the midst of all those lies who was just telling you the truth? What if you could discern in those moments, the truer story of the world? Friends, I hope you have companions that tell you the truth. I hope you have people in your lives, but this is something even nearer, closer than a brother, as the scriptures tell us. Closer than a friend that God is drawing near and whispering the truth about who you are. We live in, as Cardinal Robert Sarah calls it, a dictatorship of noise. And yet that voice of truth is speaking and available at every single moment saying, I'm with you. Those things won't satisfy, but there's something better. A person over there that you maybe were comparing yourself to, maybe judging that you are better than that person is made in the image of God, just like you are. What a wonder they are. So Jesus in our midst is promising that he will make his home with us. He's promising that he will advocate, that he will carve through the lies and bring his truth. He's also promising that he gives us peace. He says, peace I leave with you in verse 27. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. What does Jesus's presence signify? Peace. Peace. Now, it's always important for us to unpack this word because we tend to use it in therapeutic terms, very individualistic terms. Peace becomes like positive thinking, a mindset that we have, a sense of flow. Friends, it's not less than that, but it's also so much more. The word that Jesus evokes when he used the, the, this concept of peace in the Bible is the concept of shalom. This sort of all-encompassing peace, spiritual Yes, where things are right with God, relational, where things are right with others, and even creational, where things are right with the world, where everything in the words of Radiohead is in its right place. Shalom is shorthand for God's presence. Where God is, there is peace. And Jesus says, I give you my peace. Jesus comes and he promises. He says, I will make a home. I will advocate for you. I will give you my peace. Now think about these big themes and how they answer the aching questions of our day. James K. Smith describes our age as an age of refugee spirituality. You know, the sense that we are not just pilgrims on our way to somewhere, but that we're actual refugees set up in tent cities, dependent on the very grace of God for our lives and the questions that that sort of culminate and, and form the foundation of our age. Is there a place for me? And Jesus says, I make a home for you. Is there a place of safety, a place with enough to eat, where children can play and learn, a place with good work to do, to be surrounded by those whom I love and love me? The sense of home, the sense of ease, this spiritual coalescing of all of these forces. We ask the question, is there someone who is for me, who will speak the truth, who will stand up for me, who will show me the way, or am I on my own? And yet Jesus says, I will send you an advocate. I will not leave you as orphans. And is there rest? Will everything be okay? Is there any reprieve, any ease to these anxious thoughts? Jesus says, my peace I give to you. And I don't give as the world gives. It's contingent upon your your behavior or your performance. I give it to you freely. It is available to you. The resounding answer of the gospel of King Jesus to all of these questions is yes. God's yes to you. All his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And in the same symphony of promises that Jesus is giving us, that he will make a home for us, that he will advocate for us, that he will give us his peace, he tells us something quite surprising in verse 12. He says, Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Well, that is surprising. Consider the things that Jesus has done. And here he is saying that there is more. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying that the works that we are called to will uh, be quantitative or qualitatively more significant than what Jesus is going to do. We're not gonna die on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus has already done that. But what I think is going on is Jesus is saying here is that when the temple of God is the human heart, when God uniquely indwells individuals and collectives like this one, that God is working at scale. I mean, consider that. Like if you are a temple of the living God, then every place that you go to is a dwelling place for God because you are there. Not because God is in everything. He doesn't uniquely indwell trees and rocks. But because God has indwelled your heart in a way that may seem so surprising and so scandalous. And yet, this is how God has chosen to work in the world. God doesn't convey his message through a massive PR campaign. God conveys his message through people like you and me. And that is so striking and so, so intimate. And Jesus says that you will do greater things than I have done. God is now working at scale because there are a bunch of little temples running around, a bunch of tabernacles going to places like classrooms and offices and homes and allowing the spirit of God to give his peace, to make a home and to allow transformation to take place. So how do we approach this promise? How do we begin to step into this? And this is where I think we find ourselves, friends, at this threshold. You know, one of the most, it was so significant. We have a a dear sister named Zhao Li who's here visiting. She's a visiting scholar uh, from Australia, uh, Chinese, uh, by ethnicity. And one of the first things she said to me, and I I took this as such a, just something that that just carried me. And she said, this church is a home for people. And I said, you have no idea what that means. You can't know because you don't know me. But that means everything to me. And in a place like Princeton, where, you know, we could go around the room and ask how many people are from Princeton, and three of you would raise your hand, and it would be awesome. We would celebrate you. But in a place like this, where people come and they go, this sense that there is this gravitational center, that's not this building, that's not these people. It's about what God is doing in our midst that this could be a home for people, a home base for those who are going to go and find inspiration to serve King Jesus in all sorts of different ways and spaces that they would know that they're sent out into the world to be a light. We have a dear friend who's back for the first time today. Hello, Kate. But also this sense that when we gather together, that something of God's homemaking is present here. That fills me with all sorts of faith and I hope it stirs something in you So how do we begin to step into this? Again, the posture, what are we doing here? First of all, Jesus says, believe. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, again, we've been in this teaching series on faith. We've approached faith with all sorts of nuance and care. But as I said last week, Jesus praises us not for our doubts or our winsomeness or our nuance. He praises us for our faith, for belief. And here the way Jesus tells us to believe May sound like a command or a demand, but it's truly an invitation to a better way. Believe. There's a better way than be convinced that you are on your own. Believe. And as a church, we not only believe. King Jesus for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. We believe that the good news of the gospel means salvation, reconciliation, new creation, shalom, enough to eat, good and meaningful work to do, housing for those in our midst. We believe that the gospel of Jesus is the true story that narrates the story of everything and that it calls us to inhabit its truth in every facet of our lives that God's spirit is fiercely advocating for every single person that is made in his image, that he longs to give the world his all-encompassing peace. But as Paul says in Romans, how will they know unless someone goes and tells them? So Ecclesia, our faith is not only about that which saves us, it is about that which is true of the world when we as temples of the living God go, into, go with God's presence into our neighborhoods, our jobs, our classrooms, expecting that God's story is the true story of the world, we participate in the greater works that Jesus has for us. We find that God is, has already gone before us. That God is the God who's on mission. And we simply join him. Now I'm believing we've talked about the Princeton Mobile Food Pantry, I'm believing that our efforts in the community will only increase. Not because we want to say, look at how look at how cool our 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 justice work is. Not not because we want to say, look at look at all the stuff we're doing and put it on Instagram, but because where God makes his home, there's shalom where God makes his home, there is a new creation breaking forth right in the midst of this old, dying, broken creation. And in that new creation, everybody has enough. And that is the starting point to inviting people into a life with King Jesus that knows that they are forgiven of their sins, that they are reconciled to God. They're part of a reconciled humanity and that they will stand in his love for all of eternity. This is the kind of love that God has called us to embody and to be. And that's why we step into these spaces in the neighborhood. But What we want to see more than that, more than just sort of giving and participating in this economy of of things that people need and giving that is we want to discern what is God doing in this place where we meet? What is God doing outside of our walls? What is God doing in the lives of our neighbors? How do we meet them in that space? How do we know them? What does that mean for us to be that kind of people? The First thing Jesus says is to believe. The second thing he says, Again, another stunning promise. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the father may be glorified in the son. If in my name, you ask me for anything, I will do it. I went to a Pentecostal charismatic university. Uh, I once was sitting in a chapel service where a very uh, sincere man in a very, very expensive suit got up, read this verse and told me, told the whole chapel, 5, 6,000 people that Jesus will do whatever we ask for him in his name, and so he was asking for a jet. And I was like, oh, I had not read it that way before. I should read the original Greek, is that jet in there? It turns out it is not. This is a stunning promise, right? And maybe you've been a part of, of environments that were uh, less than ideal, that skewed these kind of promises. But the key phrase that Jesus offers us here is in my name. When our desires trace the lines of God's desires, the world. As we've seen, Jesus gives us a home, a voice of comfort and advocacy of peace. When we ask those, uh, when we ask for requests along those lines, Jesus promises that he will fulfill those promises. And we're trying to just cultivate more spaces for this kind of asking, this kind of waiting on the Lord. Lord, do it in your time. Do it in your power. Each Sunday morning, our prayer team gathers before the first gathering to pray to ask that God would stir something in us, that God would meet us with his power. And at the end of each gathering, we offer prayer as a point of contact. And I just encourage you, if you're able, step into those spaces. If you're able before on Sunday mornings, come for prayer. It may seem like the most, like like nothing is happening. In fact, if you're to walk in and just look at the room, you'd be like, wow, this is almost, almost a waste of time. Like all this stuff going on in the world and these people are just sitting in a room praying, and yet, if you have access to the maker of heaven and earth by simply turning your heart and attention towards him, then there is probably nothing better than you could do than to sit and pray and sit and listen for his heart to see and what it means to ask for things in the name of Jesus. And so that's why we are exploring and trying to cultivate a sense of possibility and of asking and of interceding. Jesus tells a story in Luke's gospel uh, and he says, Your heavenly father is kind of like this unjust judge. And this woman keeps asking him, asking him, and asking him, and imploring him to do what she wants him to do. And finally, he just gets tired of her asking and does it. This is Jesus' story. I'm not telling you this about God, it's in there. You can read it. But this is what somehow, in the economy of God's love and relationship to us, the asking is important. I don't know why, I don't know how it works. It's a mystery but it's a gift that we're called into. And so we want to be a church who asks, who asks for God to do more than we could do on our own. Because again, friends, if we had the best teaching, the best worship, the best coffee, like none of it would matter. It's about God's presence here. That's what this church is about. One thing I'm asking for this church to be praying more for is just more people to come to faith in Jesus. Now, again, This isn't about numbers for us. This isn't to make us feel better about ourselves. If anything, it'll just mean more gatherings. So uh, there's logistical challenges that come with that. But I've been overwhelmed with God's goodness, the stories of people finding Jesus in our community. And Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. I've just been arrested by that phrase. If our hearts are the temple of God, If God scandalously takes up dwelling in my heart, and he wants to do that in the hearts of every person I encounter, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. Friends, just let that capture your imagination. And I have so many people that I encounter either daily or in my family or in my life more broadly that I, honestly, if you ask me sincerely, my imagination says that they could never give their lives over to Jesus. That they would never make that turn. You have people like this in your life, right? It just feels impossible. It feels like there's something that's sort of blocking that. But I don't want my imagination to be informed by what my eyes can see or what I can conceive as possible. And Jesus is saying here, ask me for anything in my name. And you know the thing, the prayers that he honors when we ask in his name are prayers for people that he loves, people that he made. And so friends, I just simply want to if you have to make a list, make a list. If you have to just pay special attention, do that. But let's be a people who are imploring and asking. One of the specific ways that we're trying to embody this ask is through Alpha. Yeah, yeah I see that. It's okay. Did you to use that? All right. Yeah, oh. <laughs> um, Alpha is a sort of spiries, a series of spiritual talks. Uh, there's actually nothing magical about it, to be frank. Uh, It's very good content. Um, It's very well done. But the magic is in people that are saying, well, we're going to create a space for people to come explore Jesus. We're going to pray around that gathering. We're going to invite people prayerfully and often stepping from a place of of courage. And so I'm looking for people that want to just kind of join me in that. We've done Alpha in the past. Uh, I've been so grateful to see some of the early fruit from that. But frankly, I want to see more from it. I think with our sort of place in Princeton. Princeton's a place that is sort of notorious for pursuing life's biggest questions, which is an absolute gift. And Ecclesia is a place notorious for loving meals. And so Alpha is a place where you explore the biggest questions of life over a meal. And so I think we can do this well. And so if you would be interested in, in sort of coming alongside me uh, personally in that, I would really appreciate it. The last thing Jesus says is to obey him. And again, that call goes out to us in a myriad of ways. But Jesus says, those who love me will obey me. Jesus says, those who love me will keep my word and my Father will love them. And we will come to them and make our home with them. Thomas asked Jesus the question, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, friends, this is not a threat. This is not God minimizing the way that people can come to Jesus. This is expansive. This is an invitation. Jesus himself is the way, which means that home goes with us every step of this refugee journey that we take. Jesus himself is the way, which means that he advocates and leads and guides us. Jesus himself is the way, which means his peace is beholding every one of our steps. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I want to invite the worship team to come forward as we move to communion. Um, I don't know if you've seen this on social media. Um, I went to a seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky called Asbury Seminary. And um, on Wednesday at the college that is across the street from Asbury Seminary, Asbury College. Now, for those of you who didn't go to private Christian schools for your undergrad, a lot of private Christian schools have compulsory chapel. Uh, which means you don't get to decide whether to go or not. It's part of your, your sort of grade and your agreement to go to the school. And uh, the school I went to had that, um, and Asbury uh, has that as well. And at a chapel service on Wednesday at 10 a.m., the Spirit of God just showed up in a radically manifest way. And as of today at 11.50 on Sunday, that, that meeting that started on Wednesday is ongoing. Uh, that, that, that prayer, that, that time of worship has been going the whole time. Now, if you're like me, um, sort of like swinging from the chandelier kind of gatherings, uh, I'm, I'm always a little bit leery of. I'm like, okay, let's, let's see. Let's just take a step back and we'll see what happens. Um, but there's something, something so beautiful and magnetic. And I just want to read this to you as a vision for what our church can be in micro what our church can be as people encounter the presence of God. This is from, uh, this picture is from my new Testament professor, Craig Keener. And as I told the first service true to form, Craig Keener has 40 scripture references to back up his Facebook post. But uh, another one of my professors, systematic theologian, Jason Vickers talks about going to the service and he has some similar skepticisms that I have. He said, just, he walked over there from his office to the college. He said I'd been seated in the auditorium for less than 10 minutes when I came to, by which to mean to say when I suddenly found myself having conscious thoughts about my surroundings and about what I was experiencing. The best way I know how to put this is to say that it was though in just a few short minutes I had completely zoned out. Now, upon the resumption of deliberative conscious thought, two things stood out to me. First, there was a noticeable lack of tension in my body. I was completely relaxed. There was also a complete lack of mental tension or distraction. My mind was at utter peace, and I'd only been there for 10 minutes. The second thing I recall is that I could sit here in this chair forever, The desire to linger indefinitely was quite unexpected. I had planned to pop in for a few minutes before returning to work. Suddenly, work was the farthest thing from my mind. I wound staying up for well over an hour. In that time I was there, I could not get over certain distinctive qualities about the atmosphere. The words that came to mind were gentle, sweet, peaceful, serene, tender, still. Some people were singing, others were talking, many were praying, but there was something like a blessed stillness permeating the place. No one was swinging from the chandeliers. In fact, it was the opposite. What made this so wild was just how unwild the whole thing was and is. And, friends, I say that to say not every time we gather do we need to expect that God will like, fall on this place and that there'll be this sense like they would kick us out of here. Like the Arts Council would be like, okay, we know the Spirit of God's here, but you have to go. But just this sense, this absence of tension. How many people, when they come to church, either because of the baggage they have with Christians or because of the baggage they have with God or the baggage they carry within themselves, have this sense of tension, have the fight or flight kick in immediately? We can be a place that embodies God's presence to such an extent that that tension leaves. How many people come and they're carrying just the weight of lies that are being thrust upon them at every moment? We can be an advocate of the truth. That they are made in the image of God. That they are a son and a daughter of the risen king. That Jesus gave his life. That their life is of eternal significance because Jesus died for them individually and us collectively. We can be those kind of people. And we can be an embodiment of God's shalom, his peace. That there would be no needy among us. And that we, because God is doing something in our midst, would look to the needs of our neighbors. With compassion, with purpose, and would step into those places with the love and the care of our Father. Friends, I hope, I hope that there's a sense of stirring among us. I want to just wrap this up as we move to the table by saying two things. First of all, if if that's you, if you're like, I'm carrying the lies, I'm carrying the weight. I pray that the Spirit of God in this moment would meet you with all the force of heaven, with all the beauty of His love for you, that you are forgiven, you are redeemed, there's nothing you need to do, no, no checklist that you need to go fulfill in order to come and receive. You stand before God if you will simply just accept it. Loved, cleansed, redeemed, made new, washed for a purpose. I pray that you would hear that for me. And I pray for us collectively that our collective imaginations would be stirred with what it means to be the home of God, God making his home in us and among us, that this would truly change the world that we walk in. God wants to do more than we can ask or imagine. But we start by asking, by obeying, by believing. In my Father's house, there are many, many rooms. Let that capture your imagination this morning.